podcast listeners, welcome to episode 13 of Misfits. This is where I speak to the rebels, the troublemakers, and the unconventionals in Singapore. Try to see things as how they see it and learn from them. Some of these individuals include Danny Wong, who started a million-dollar cupcake empire. Betty Lee, who at the age of 60 went backpacking around the world for 400 days. And a whole lot more. And today on the show, we have uh, Jack Sim, who is the founder of World Toilet Organization, Base of Permit Hub, World Toilet College, Wrestling Association of Singapore, and many, many more, including 45 Rides, Kampung Tamasic. I just couldn't name them all. Just go check out his Facebook profile and the whole list of them. So after attaining financial independence at the age of 40, by creating 16 successful businesses, he decided to retire and devote his life to social work. Time Magazine named him Hero of the Environment in 2008. He holds a Master in Public Administration at Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. At 59, he graduated from Silicon Think Tank Singularity University. In this conversation, we talk about the power of leverages in the world of social enterprise, the pitfalls of having definition, what Jack learned in the Singularity University, and much, much more. So, Without further ado, if you can take a step at describing your childhood, you know, how would you describe it? Uh, very carefree, not much parental control, uh, always a very playful in class and uh, failed in school, always forgiven and always been loved. That's mom, mom, mom side, both mom and dad. Uh, dad side beat you a lot. Uh, he's very upset because he really doesn't want me to be like a failure. He always say, do you really want to grow up like me? He's a grocery store uh, assistant. So delivering all the provisions. So of course, he earned very little and he hoped that his children will do better. It's very sad all the time that we fail. <laughs> but how, how was your brother? Is he and Very serious, very serious and uh, very responsible, taking care of everything in the family, especially the finances, because uh, my mother didn't go to school, so she don't know how to count so much. So my brother take care of the family. Father is always at work. Yeah. Yeah. And you, call me if I'm wrong, you failed both O-level and A-level, right? And looking back, if you could just answer the question of why do you think you're bad in school? Right? Uh, in school, they don't like children who is uh, playful and talkative and... It's very difficult to sit still and just listen and regurgitate and get good marks. So I also don't quite understand why I'm learning those things I'm learning. Like if I ask the teacher, um, why do I learn geography? And she will say, maybe you want to be an ST word and you need to know where you're flying to. But that's not like very interesting answer. So I don't understand why I'm learning chemistry or history 
And so learning becomes very boring in school, especially when you're forced to. You know? But whether you're in class or outside class, you learn whatever you are doing. You, you play, you learn, you interact with other kids, you learn. But it's those things don't count. It's the only academic learning counts, which is strange. Yes. So basically, you summarize it in like you're just a very active kid. Uh, and also, you did not know why you learned the things you learned, are learning. Hence, there's no reason for you to put in the effort to, to sort of like continue to be working hard at those things. I think the same problem today with all the other kids. Nobody knows why they are learning those things they are learning. They say, oh, you don't have to ask why. You just have to pass exam and you get a good job and life will be wonderful if you get good marks. It's also not true now. You might all be graduate but still not find a good job because you don't have other skills like how to get along with people or leadership skill or courage. You might be so scared. Yeah. And did you how did you turn those like, you know, bad disadvantage into into your favor? Like reflecting on where you are now and how you are before as a kid, you know. I think if you're always forgiven and always loved, you feel safe. You feel that um, my mother will protect me. So you become optimistic and whatever bad thing other people do to you, you know that your mother will love you. So I think that's a very important thing for children to know. And I don't really get punished by my mother. And so that gives me a lot of strength. Yeah. I think you are very much an example that I would want to follow as, you know, as a person right now, you're 59, 60? Are you... Yeah, 59. But you're still a, very much a, a kid at heart, you know, mm. pulling what you want to and, and, and going forth, uh, knowing that there's barriers in the world, but also the barriers doesn't, doesn't, doesn't stop you from doing what you want to do. Yeah, I think nobody should grow up to be adults because adults are deteriorated children, too serious, so self-conscious, so worried what other people think of them, worried about other people's opinion and live for other people's consumption. So I think staying childlike, uh, childish, innocent, and always questioning. I think this is much better. So all those qualities that you said just now, do you think it's something that you know came to you um, after quitting, you know, after retiring at 40? Or has it always stayed with you throughout the years? I think it's always like that, you know. Being a naughty boy, trying to challenge authority, asking questions and uh, being very optimistic and making things very simple. I think these are the uh, personality traits that I use uh, all the way. Yeah. And those, when you're starting a business, um, that didn't stop you from still continuing these traits, did, did it? Yeah. Uh, starting business is much easier than studying because business has a logic uh, school has no logic, you just remember and regurgitate, but 
uh, business is more about pleasing the customer and paying bills and of course you get all the stress but you know why in school you don't know why let's since we're on the topic of business maybe you just want to give a short um, summary because you you mentioned 16 businesses and then i when i start googling it was like oh you're selling some construction materials yeah. what is this you know give us a short like two minutes of like what are this 16 sequence of 16 businesses that happened so first i was a salesman in Ditlam, that is a Swiss company, and I was selling partitions, movable ballroom partitions. Then when I left, somebody invested $100,000 for me to start a new business and give me 20% share. And I went to take a new agency from Germany, also ballroom partition, and we grew it um, quite large till the manufacturer says don't buy from me anymore let's start a factory together in malaysia so i started one then i took another agency selling clay roof tiles and in those days all the roof are cement roof concrete roof tiles and so i brought in clay roof tiles from france and so at about three and a half times more expensive than concrete roof tiles. The Singaporean like it and the developer like it. And in three and a half years, the entire Singapore buy clay roof tiles. So concrete roof tile became totally off. Wait, so so it was more expensive. Yeah. And how did you how did you convince them that they need it? Because the clay is a natural insulation material and it lasts very long and concrete roof tile the color you paint on it the paint go away whatever color you buy is black and uh, the clay roof tile if you use clay roof tile the house look very beautiful and also the air conditioning bill is cheaper okay. so the okay. insulation value is very high and i was able to explain this and the trends change because it's orange color is very beautiful not black and the entire country changed and the rooftop factory in France says don't buy from us anymore we'll start a factory with you in Malaysia so I started the biggest rooftop factory in uh, in this region and that is while you're running also the first company or has yeah. it exited already no no all the company the continues time. and then oh, wow. we realized that uh, we could do real estate development so we started to buy small pieces of land and build. And you know, during those days, the market was uptrend. So we have a whole series of development companies. Then uh, we went into bricks manufacturing, the biggest brick factory in Malaysia, uh, May Bricks, that's uh, our venture. Then eventually also do investment and the last business was to start the Australian International School in Singapore. At Lolong Chuan? Uh, right now in Lolong Chuan, oh. but it started in uh, Mount Sophia Methodist Girls School. We rent from them some classroom. And then from 32 students, we grew until 3,500 students. Then we sold the company away. 
yeah. So as a as a businessman, right? Fundamentally, what do you think in business you are world class at? I'm not world class at business. I'm always a small medium enterprise. I'm uh, able to identify a need and then uh, find expert and find money and find partners to do it. I'm always a minority shareholder, but I leverage on other people's strength and everybody go together and when we make money, the next investment, they will follow again. So this group of investors continue to follow. Every time I have a business idea, I call them, they don't have to think. They say, well, always you make money, so I'll follow you, Based whatever you think. Based track yeah. record. Yes. <laughs> but I think fundamentally, you are a really great salesman, just selling the, for first selling the material, then selling ideas. Selling ideas, yeah. But not world class. Uh, my business are not that big. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are some advices you would give to a young person, fresh out of school, um, for business, business advice, if they want to be an entrepreneur? Try to serve the customer to extreme. Uh, think about them more than you think about yourself and make them want to come back to you no matter what. So in the beginning when I was selling building materials, I would look for competitor product and recommend them to the customer if my product is not the best. So if the customer says, I want it to do such and such a specification and I don't have it, I will go and look for a competitor and introduce them to my customer. And most people won't do that. But the competitor would think I'm stupid. But the customer won't go away because the customer says, no matter what I need, if you don't have, you get somebody else. So I don't have to like go hunting. But if you have, I will buy yours first. So I always have the first priority that they will buy from me because I think for them more than I think for myself. And in return, the loyalty uh, is very sticky. So they say, I'll just always call you first because if I call you, I still have my answer no matter whether you have it or not. You see? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like being the source of the, you know, solving their problem. Yeah. If you solve people's problem, they always want you to come back. Yeah. And what are some of the biggest um, business lessons uh, you have gained um, from, you know, starting um, many, many businesses? I think uh, when the trend is very good, you thought that you're very smart. And then when the recession comes, then you realize that you're not smart. And sometimes winning makes you arrogant, make you um, think that it was you, but actually there are a lot of macroeconomics conditions. So you need to be quite fast to let things go. If if environment starts to change, you might want to cut loss and don't continue to lose even more. I'm curious to know, is there a story that you made you learn that lesson or someone 
have imparted an incident or? No, uh, 1998 was a recession and uh, I was suddenly realizing that, hey, I'm not that clever after all, because in the recession, you can't do really a lot, right? So that's where I started to do social work. And switching from business to social work made me feel I'm clever again. And that kind of bring back the self-esteem and confidence and dignity. But at the same time, I start to realize that doing business is not that fun. Doing social work, solving more neglected problem is more fun and more purposeful. So after being uh, in restroom association for a while, and then I realized this world don't have a world toilet organization. So I created that. And then I start to realize that actually people die at 80. So I was already 40. So I should try not to make more money. This realization is very important because the real currency that you're spending in your life is not money, it's time. And you can't buy time, you can't save time. You got to exchange time for the highest value return. And the highest value of return is service to humanity. Because if you get more money, it doesn't make you happier after some point. And actually, selling time in exchange for something you don't need is a loss-making business. So if you don't have money, you need, you need to work for money. If you have some money and you still want to have more money, you are stupid. Because by giving the time that you have, which is the only thing life is made of, in exchange for money you will never spend to put into uh, the side of the bed when you just die. And it's an, in your account book. The more you left behind, the more money you left behind, the more losses you have. Because with all this money that you make, you are actually exchanging the time and the life that you have, which can be do, doing something else more meaningful, like social work. Yeah. Right. So, that means there's a, there's a turning point there where you say the 1997 financial crisis, right? Um, so, was the turning point a wake-up call or how do you see like like how did what, what was the pivoting point or was it like a catalyst for you yeah, to think about because I always need to create and when I cannot create I suffocate and when I start to fail and start to lose money uh, I start to feel a loss of self-esteem and not clever to the level of merely being depressed. And I think it's so unnecessary to treat yourself like that, right? Uh, I mean, why kill yourself mentally when you just lost some money? Yeah. So I step back and start to re-review uh, my life. And I think actually money is not the... Uh, source of happiness. Money gives you some safety, 
money give you some respect and pride but too much money make you unable to do other things so the recession was another bad thing that actually became good so i uh, think that that switch at 40 uh, was uh, kind of like life give you signages if there's no entry here it means don't come don't go this way go somewhere else but they don't tell you go where right then you start to look and according to the maze and all the signages of life you end up to become who you become according to all the accidents and serendipity that happen just take it naturally yeah and you didn't want to you know like recruit your law start another business uh, that did that was that one of the decision or one no, because I thought if I could lose half of my money in one recession I don't want to lose all of my money in another recession so I better keep this and stop gambling at the table right and it's enough so why do you want to have more Got it. but if somebody have to go kill themselves because they lost uh, hundred million dollars and still got ten million dollars and it's too little it's just a psychological thing because ten million is quite a lot right? and what are your I mean comparing your views on money um, back then and and now how, how are they different after that inflection point I become more detached with money and uh, able to give it away able to not be so friendly and intimate with money and the same thing also when you start to do this work and the paparazzi came and you appear on tv another type of intoxication happened not money but this time fame and then you think that you are a great guy but actually Fame is another distraction that you must tame. So greed, fame, fortune, jealousy. Lust. Lust might be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you continue to, to, to love your wife, it's not a bad motivation. But emotions are not good or bad. They are useful. And so you have to keep tricking your mind so that you become motivated but in a good way and the end result is helpful for other people um, so before we step into you know uh, volunteerism actually I just want to ask is, is there do you have a favorite failure in your life you know or that's really important for you that sort of change how you look at things actually I try to think that because I don't stop I don't give up um, it's not failure, it's work in progress. So if you just say, all right, this doesn't work, I'll put it on the side, I'll try something else, and then that work, okay. Oh, now the timing is good, this I take back and I do again. So simultaneously, I would have like 40 or 50 things in the pipeline, and some will work and some don't work, and I'm always busy, and I'll create some more new ideas. And I have so many ideas, I can't do it myself. I got to give it away and let other people do. So you have to be detached not to 
hold on to your ideas because you can't implement all of them. And I realized that doing an NGO, uh, doing things in your own name doesn't matter anymore because you are going to die. So creating movement is more interesting than creating NGO. That means like World Toilet Organization, World Toilet Day is 19 November and it's open source and everybody celebrate World Toilet Day. They don't have to ask me for permission, right? But because it is a movement, it's open for everybody. If it was not a movement, if it was controlled by me, then I will become the obstacle of my mission. And this is a trap that a lot of NGO gets into because they think they, they are the only one that can save the world. So I want to save the world, but only me. Don't other people, please stop. Don't compete with me. I think that is a oxymoron. Yeah. Actually, I would like to dig into that more. Um, maybe, let's, maybe just rewind back a little bit on when, when you started volunteerism, right? Um, and in fact, your first foray into volunteerism, I'm not sure if this is true, whatever I read online, is uh, suicide counselling. Is this yeah. true? Yeah. <laughs> SOS. Yeah. So it's one of those numbers that is stick all over in a financial crisis and people call and you're on the other side of the phone. Yeah. So they trained me to listen. They trained me for nine months to listen. So there's a SOS has very, very good training. Uh, I remember the class started with like 30 people and end up with six. And all the 24 didn't finish the class because they're either um, too self-indulgent. So if you are listening and counseling, you cannot indulge in a person's life. You have to be detached. You cannot be judgmental, and uh, those training were very good. Except that it's very lonely. You sit there, and sometimes the phone don't ring. Sometimes all the phone rings, and you can only pick up one. And sometimes it's crank call, and so it's uh, it takes a lot to carry on inside um, SOS. Can you tell me? Can you explain a little bit more about the the nine months training? What were you doing? What like, is it a live uh, you know, uh, situation where, where they call you and they, we start talking? It's not a full-time job. So okay. you go there like once or twice a week at night and then they train you. And they train you in listening skills. For example, if, if a, a girl say the mother-in-law is terrible, then another girl say, yeah, mother-in-law are always terrible. You know how I... Handle mine, let me teach you my trick. And that, that's indulgent, that's wrong. You see? Or if, if somebody say to me, oh, my boyfriend left me and now I'm going to go and kill myself because uh, it's so unfair, then you don't say, ah, oh, don't worry, you know, there are tons of boys and, and there are more fishes in the ocean, you can always get another one. These are all... So what should you be, what will you be saying? You should empathize about the feeling how they are feeling now and uh, make them feel that somebody can feel their pain and somebody is listening and somebody cares to pay attention to them and then through the conversation you don't give any advice but they feel that they have received guidance until they saw 
a way out. And usually if the call finish and they say, thanks for all your advice, but you didn't give any advice. So you have to see if they, at the end they feel comfortable and at ease with themselves and accepted the situation well. And is there usually like a follow-up call? No, if they don't call us, we don't know who they are. It's all anonymous. We also give fake names. They don't know who we are. And we will never meet them unless it's kind of like a, a life and death situation. The husband is going to beat her tonight again and then you have to send for some rescue okay. and all that. Yeah. If there's no, uh, there's no urgency to meet them. We also don't meet them. The police will go meet them. Okay. Or they go to a halfway house or something like that. And, and how, how did that um, transit uh, into uh, restroom uh, association? So before that, I tried heritage conservation of old buildings because at that time they were tearing down a lot of buildings and also trying to conserve Chinatown, Kampong Glam, Little India and all these old houses like this one. And I started to fall in love with old buildings and they're, they're so romantic, right? But um, after restoring two or three of them, I find that you run out of money, you know? So you can't do that. So I went to buy one museum in in Malacca at the Heron Street, the UNESCO heritage site. Long ago, it was just a, it was not UNESCO heritage site. So I renovated, it's so beautiful. The process of renovating old houses is also very beautiful. So doing all these things lovingly is very therapeutic. Whatever you do, you do lovingly, you feel very nice. And that was after, after, like before Suicide Hotlines? Uh, after Suicide after, Hotlines, after, yeah. Okay, and then that... And then I find that you can't do a lot because URA takes over all the decision and you can't do anything here. So then I saw toilets. It's a neglected subject and Go Chok Tong was saying we should do uh, measure our graciousness against the cleanliness of our public toilet and that was a big inspiration. What was your, after listening to that speech that Kosotong made, what were your few, you know, like ideas that came out that spurred into your mind? Well, I felt that it, it's also an unfair statement that the user are to blame. I felt that the owners of the buildings have to keep it clean, have to make a good state of repair and the cleaners have to be trained and the supplies of paper and soap has to be there and so uh, when you when the toilet respect you, you respect the toilet. So what were the action steps you, you, you took um, from went, that moment? I went to uh, shopping centres to tell them that you're losing a lot of money if you don't clean up your toilet because shoppers will leave and they cannot hang around when they have to go to the toilet. They'll go home uh, with their wallet. So if you were to keep them in the building, impulse buying is like 95% of all purchases are impulse buying. 
So they will stay longer, they will shop more, they will eat. So they understand very quickly, right? It's a money-making thing, it's not a cost center. Um, I went to school to tell the principal that your marks will be lower because the kids uh, don't want to go to the toilet, they are suppressing urination. And when you have a full bladder, you're not paying attention to the teacher. Uh, if the toilet is smelly, then it's not a good, healthy environment. So the principal wants to have a good marks and good ranking. So they take care of their toilets. So I talked to Minister Lim Sui Se, and he became a partner and we renovated a lot of public toilets. He gave a $4 million budget to give subsidies to renovating coffee shop toilets. Yeah, it was a very fun thing to do. Yeah, so um, did the organization start after you identified the problem and people were willing to solve it and then you legitimize it uh, with the organization or uh, that was already then on your oh, mind, the I, association actually. I, I realized we need a restroom association, so I just went to uh, register it and I have to ask around how, how do you register an association. Actually, it was really funny. Why? Um, when I wanted, later on I realized there are 15 toilet associations around the world without headquarters. So I wanted to register World Toilet Organization as a world body. So I have this mindset that there must be a place in the world where you register world body. So I keep asking around, is it in Geneva or Paris or New York or Washington or whatever? And the reply I got was, there's no such a place to register a world body. It's whether people recognize you as a world body or nobody noticed you and uh, so there's no such a place and so in that case I can register in Singapore they say of course so I register in Singapore World Toilet Organization and overnight it became a world body because on 19th of November when we started the World Toilet Summit it was really funny uh, pre uh, Minister Lim Sui Se came and then all the different government departments from all over the world came and the media loved it. It was like a shock, right? Then that time, I'm also very surprised with the media coverage. It's a overnight sensation. And so no PR, hundreds no... of millions of uh, hits. Yeah? And the internet, social media was just very early in that time, but it already caught the internet uh, crowd a lot, you know, Wired magazines and all the news correspondents were reselling the news. Yeah, yeah no, no PR, no planning. I have no expertise in PR. So once, once it's out, people just sort of caught the news. Um, was there, but you, you took a very interesting way of marketing um, which is very you, you know. It's a very humorous, um, you know, self-deprecation humor. Um, was that uh, after, like, you know, after um, when you started World Toilet Organization? Or was that since the beginning, it 
it's already like that that's the angle you guys are going i think naturally i'm a funny guy so as i explained i'm very naughty but i also um a year later i went to take some mentorship from mr condom in thailand and uh his name is michai and he is he promoted condom in thailand because thailand is like the sex capital of the world and if there's no condom a lot of unwanted pregnancy and a lot of venereal diseases and aids will happen so he saved millions and millions of lives by making the condom funny see so i asked him how did you do it tell me the trick i want to do with toilet he says yes it's uh we are in the same vicinity and uh if you can make people laugh and if you can laugh at them uh, laugh with them and if you can feel comfortable when they laugh at you then you can do this job well because when they are laughing they are listening to you and they will remember forever rather than when it was a serious message so that was like a two hours chat with him and it became the most important lesson of my social life yeah the how did you find him like i'm curious because there's so much people in the social entrepreneurship world um what made you decide that he's the one you know to to go forward so i read about mr condom but i don't know how to find him and when i was in kitakyushu in 1999 uh, all the toilet association met and then the thai sewerage department uh, senior officer was there and then i asked her can you connect me with mr condom i'll fly to bangkok to see him and she made the introduction oh. that's how it happened okay and and you specifically chose him because of the humor like yeah i think that his model is most suitable for me uh, his subject is also very taboo and he was very good. He he went to the brothels to blow condom into balloon and teach the prostitute that condom is a girl best friend. He doesn't moralize a problem. He effectively solved the problem. Uh, whereas the church was against him promoting condom and they scolded him, uh, the Catholic Church. And and I say, how do you handle the church? They scold you. And he says, I will apologize to them. I will say, I'm so sorry. I'm young. I'm naive. I always make mistakes and make them very happy. And then when he leaves the meeting, he'll continue to do what he do. And they give up trying to counsel him. So actually, the truth is he actually have a bigger uh, shoulder, bigger weight on his shoulder because condom is even a more taboo subject, especially in a country like Thailand. Yeah. But for sanitation and toilet, it was lumped together with water. That's true. And then water is glamorous and lots of funding goes to water and no money goes to toilet. And that is the, like the ugly sister. And I prefer to handle this because without 
proper sanitation, all the shit will go to the river, contaminate the water. But the vanity of the world does not allow them to say shit, toilet, poop, sanitation. So they call it a water agenda. And it makes no sense, you know. If you call something something else, how will anyone ever know, right? Exactly. Um, so we're going to take a step back a little bit and uh, ask you, what are some of the most common misconceptions um, about you know, social entrepreneurship? A lot of time, people think that social enterprises will be very profitable and also save the world. I think that that can happen if it grows to scale, but it will not maximize profit because if you price it too high, the number of customers will be less. So if you price it just to survive, then you have to be very good at it so that you won't suddenly suffer losses. And a lot of social entrepreneurs are actually relying on grants a lot. And I think grants are hard to get nowadays. So you have to dream very big to be a social entrepreneur. Maybe uh, it's much easier much easier to be a commercial businessman, oh. you know. Yeah. How 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 will you define social entrepreneurship? Uh it's not good to have a fixed definition. Okay. But basically to solve social problems with a business model or business ideas. For example, the World Talent Organization don't really make money but it creates the impact through business leverages. So we leverage other people to do things for other people. So if we were to think about the entire advocacy of World Toilet Organization, people think, oh, advocacy is just fluff, you know, you're talking only. But if World Toilet Organization did not exist, then they will still call it water. Sanitation will not be attended to. And sanitation agenda has to compete not just with water. It has to compete with sports, football. It has to compete with um, elections. It has to compete with uh, movie star scandals. And all the media is covering everything, right? So where does shit compete with all this climate change and cancer and, you know, uh, AIDS and all that, right? Yeah. So, so these are all very, very big subject. And by making it funny, we are able to make sanitation visible and then the people can get solution. But how do you get it? I'll just explain okay. the, no the whole yes. leverage process. Yeah. I tell funny story. Yeah. I do stunts photograph that are very sacrificial sit on toilet and look wrapped with toilet paper and all that then the media loves it the media give it a lot of coverage they got attention and once the media legitimize it the politician comes in and say if that guy talks so much shit and get media i will also talk about toilet and then he start to talk about toilet and then public policy happens, so the bureaucrats uh, take 
take the cue from the politician and start doing public policy. So the media is not interested in any story. They're interested in readership and they're interested in uh, advertising income. So a story like mine helps them to get their objective. So they don't need to be pilot story, but it's a mutual say win-win. win-win. You know, mutual exploitation is collaboration, right? Now, the politician is not interested in which subject. He just wants to win votes and be popular. So if the media give him the story, give him the coverage, he will do toilet. So you can see both of them are not interested in toilet, but both of them are getting what they want through this leverage channel. The bureaucrats like to be the friend of the politician, so they come up with public policy. And then the academia, the professor, they need to publish or they lose their tenure, publish or perish. So they're not particularly interested in sanitation. They just need to keep their job. And then you get World Toilet Summit and, and media and then they can publish, right? Then the donors find, oh, I, my money can go anywhere, but this one is now touch my heart and I'm going to support because you see the leverage process yes so you don't need to do things yourself if you can make other people do things for other people but how much money are there in the whole process hundreds of millions of dollars are in action and no money comes to me the media value would be hundreds of millions of dollars the um, political investment sometimes runs into billions of dollars but you cannot attribute it to World Thailand Organization because it is a trigger effect. Yeah. But if you see the chain reaction, you understand our work much better. I think also maybe there's a misconception when you say it's a business, right? Because in the media just paint billions and then you look at then World Thailand Organization is a business. But the truth is, like what you say, the money doesn't come to you. Yeah. And it's not a real business but it is social entrepreneurship because it is a spirit of enterprise, but it is not an enterprise, you see? So when people try to define things too tightly, then you will block out new innovative thinking. So the space should be let loose so that people can think openly what it takes to solve the problem rather than what the definition is. Sometimes definition locks in your thinking process. So that's why being a child, being having common sense is much better than being an adult. <laughs> yes. And maybe since we're on the topic on definition, I just want to clear things up a little bit. Um, an NGO is a non-government organization, an NPO, non-profit organization, and then you have uh, social entrepreneurship. Um, why is it easier for a person who is doing good to be labelled uh, as a social entrepreneur? That's, is it easier that way or is it better to be an MPO or NGO? Is there less regulations on the things they do? I think to call something what it is not is also very funny, right? Yes. Not for profit, not government organisation. I don't know, these are the common terms that some academic 
professor must have came up with and then it sticks, right? So no choice, uh, you follow. But the reality is, it really doesn't matter. It matters that if you say you are not for profit, people tend to sympathize you with grant. If you say you are a for-profit business, then you attract investors because investors will run away if you are non-profit. So depending on which is the business model you want to use, you just use whichever format. The most important thing is whatever it takes to solve the problem and you do it legally, morally, ethically, and I think that is the boundaries. Okay, so I'm going to uh, turn a little bit here um, by giving advices to the uh, fresh graduate. So my first question is, as a fresh graduate, you have, you have two ways to go about uh, and going into social entrepreneurship. One way is kind of like start your business, like what Bill Gates does, earn a lot of money, and then move on later in life to do social work. And there's also another way, which is you just start, just go right into social work. What do you recommend and what are the pros and cons? You can't recommend. It depends on who you are. Uh, I failed in school, so I become a salesman. If your opportunity cost is very high, you tend to become trapped by that opportunity. If you lost everything, there's nothing to lose, then you become totally free to do whatever you want to do. So losing can be opening up winning space. Winning could be closing up uh, other spaces. So all these things are depending on what happened to you. I think that to live naturally and follow the flow, but always looking out for opportunity and be very inquisitive, ask stupid questions, ask questions that would not be allowed to be asked and just keep going like that. Uh, you will discover life most people study something and then end up doing something else, right? Some people study geology and then they end up doing social work. Some people study social work, they end up become a lawyer. Whatever, you know. Just do what pleases you most. The things that give you the highest energy, do it. The things that takes away your energy, don't do it. The people who give you energy, go along with them. The people who sucks out your energy, avoid them. That's all right. That, that's life. Right? right, right. And you don't, you wouldn't know until you try. So try. Yeah, you might be, you might be with a very negative friend and you still be, hang around with her or him. Why? You, 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 you lost energy mixing around with this person, right? right? Whereas there's another one who can give you energy, you should go. Yeah, so when you, go, when you go about starting the Restroom Association, I think you mentioned that you know, using Singapore as, as a model, um, how we develop you know, um, into what we are today and uh, to try to use that as a vision for, for India. Not for India, for the world. For the world. Yeah. What did Singapore did correctly? And yeah, maybe let's just, let's just go on that. Singapore is the best managed country in the whole world. Singaporeans don't understand that, you know. This is a country that has no resource, but it's very clever. It leverages on all the 
neighbors and all the screw-ups of other people and all the opportunity that presents itself. And the DNA of Singaporean is the story of Singapore. It's also the story of Lee Kuan Yew. How can it turn a third world country to a first world country? And then there's a lot of social media that it was never a third world country. Don't bullshit yourself. I live in a kampong. I live in a slum too. Our, we have a bucket system, toilet. We don't have a drinking water. I, I was running around naked with other kids. We were all naked because we have no clothing. So the people say, no, oh, never. We were all very good. The very good picture were the houses of the Angmoor in Serangoon Garden and in all these Angmoor houses. Of course, they are very rich. But the ordinary people were very poor. So if we can turn from third world to first world in 25 years using the market forces, then so can other countries. So I thought, since Singapore did it, why don't we help other countries do it? I want Singapore to be the epicenter for the base of pyramid trade, which has 4 billion new customers. These 4 billion people earn average of 2 to $3 a day. US. But if you do the same like China did or like Singapore did, they will eventually become middle class. And then the world will be fairer because you cannot have a world economy running on 3 billion people and leave the 4 billion out of your former economy. That is not fair because when they are inside our world economy, they can trade, they can create jobs, the multiplier effect of the dollar the velocity of money in their local economy can run. And so when I wanted to do this, I went to study at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public right, can Policy. Can just hold, hold on that thought? I uh, just want to explain base of pyramid to the rest. And Jack, please correct me if I'm wrong. So uh, base of pyramid, uh, you have uh, the top tier and then you have the bottom tier. And uh, the thing about the bottom tier is that there's a lot of uh, donations and money being pumped into it. But like, as what you say, I think the word you used was it's a, it's a zero-sum game. You need to introduce entrepreneurship and economy into the base of the pyramid. Maybe right. I'll try. For, yeah, well, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there are 7.2 billion people in the world today. Okay. And if you put it into a pyramid, according to income strata, the top of the pyramid has 3.2 billion people yeah. and it is the middle class and the rich. And the whole world economy focuses on these 3.2 billion people and the other 4 billion people who are lower income are not part of the global economy and we call it the base of the pyramid. So because they are not part of our global economy, they cannot get out of poverty. For example, they are farmers, they plant coffee, they plant uh, uh, rice, they plant all the food that we eat, but they get very little for the price because the multinational suppress their price, they don't let them connect with the, with the world economy and the NGOs make it worse by using the charity money to create a market price of zero. And when market price is zero, the local businessman cannot compete because it's a donation, it's free. When you cannot compete, you cannot create local enterprises, you cannot create jobs. So market price of zero, which is caused by charity, it's a market distortion. Whereas, if there's market has a price, they will have 
entrepreneurs that will have job and their economy will grow. Right. So a lot of people think donating money is good. Well, in a disaster, donating money is very important. But in a chronic situation, distorting the market is actually very bad. Damaging. To very economy. damaging, yeah. So in instead of that, um, Base of Permit was born. So you, you want to create, how, how, how are you doing it? It's a very big uh, challenge. Yeah. So uh, I think about everybody knowing all the solutions. So every solution is already found, but it's in little pockets all over the world. And Ashoka has collected all these social entrepreneur ideas. And if we were to let each one of these, which are not very profitable because they are too small scale, if you scale out all of them by letting everyone copy everyone, it will work very well. And small players can play at the same level as multinational. So small medium enterprise in Singapore can also enter this market and do it somewhat profitably. So if they are borrowing money at 30, 40, 50% interest, it will be running like courts, you know. Courts can sell you a product and don't make much money, but they make a lot of interest, right? And if courts goes to the BOP market, he'll do a boomtown business. So what is stopping courts from going there is that, oh, I don't know this market, I don't know the people, never been there before. So if you make things easier, you can run the local economy. And nobody should be deprived of drinking water. Why must they drink dirty water and get sick and then their children have diarrhea and some of them die? Why must they have no toilet? Why must they have no housing, sleep on the street? All these are because of market inefficiency. What we want to do is to create market efficiency by bringing the market to the poor and involving them. Got it. Um, let's just uh, switch over a little bit to education. Since you're talking about uh, Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, uh, what was it that made you uh, want to learn uh, in the Lee Kuan Yew uh, School of Public Policy? I've never been uh, in a university and I didn't graduate. So I felt very inadequate. At 52, right. my mother said none of her children graduated. So I told her, no, I can do that. That was one motivation. The other one is that I keep giving the government very good ideas and they keep on rejecting me and no, no, no. And I wonder why. Why is these people rejecting my good ideas? So instead of being angry with them, I go there to understand, to, understand, to become one of them, right? And uh, after I studied, I know that government is not monolith. You have to find that person because they are all not the same. So people working in government are like us. You cannot say suddenly because they work in the government, they are all the same. They're not the same. You have to find the one who wants to do this with you. And they don't identify themselves. They don't wear a t-shirt. I'm the one you're looking for. You don't know. So you, so you kind of like a girl looking for a husband. Like, very hard to find. So you have to do try and error and along the way of course you get very disappointed a lot of people give up right what did you other than that is there anything you learn out of the four years 
I learned a lot like um, cost-benefit analysis. If we want to run a country, we have to understand externalities because if you run a business, you don't care about externalities. For example, a toilet is not just a toilet. Its externalities is hospital bills, uh, a shortage of doctors and nurses because you are creating a lot of diseases by being not hygienic. And, and so, all the, if you are the Ministry of Health, and then you are the Ministry of Environment, and you are the Ministry of Finance, actually you should be all talking to one another because the total cost of the externality cost in the society, those usually are not calculated in business. So, learning public policy helps me have a more complete uh, circumspect view about problems and not get too angry about the government after that. Yeah. <laughs> and knowing who to talk to and how to pitch to them is... It's still hard to find but you have more patience. And um, my um, journeys from poverty to being well-to-do, from commercial business to social business, from um, school failure to professorship now, I'm teaching at Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy and to understand public policy plus this year I go and study technology at Singularity University which is the most cutting edge uh, school for Did you want that or were you like intentionally wanting to study there? I was invited to teach there for a day two years ago in 2014 and I found that school very special so I wanted to come back but it costs a lot of money so um, you know to study there for one week costs 14,000 US dollar and it's a 10 weeks program right and it's a 10 weeks program free so of course I apply right but they only got this scholarship uh, like last year and this year so when I realized it is free I apply and they say, well, it's Jack Sim, he taught here before, let's get him in. So, 4,000 over people applied, only 80 got in and I was uh, very lucky. And I learned about the technology and I get very worried about Singapore. I'm very worried that the educational system here is not actually able to prepare people for the onslaught of all the Technology and business model change and all the disruption that is happening. Technology is not the problem. It is the way business is run that is the problem. Can we talk about some technologies that um, you saw over there? For example, right now, your uh, jobs are disappearing every day. You are going to the airport and now the custom officer will be disappeared because you are using electronic pass. McDonald's ordering is self-ordering. The hawkers will get robots cooking the food. And then the self-driving car will be no taxi driver. And so because of the self-driving car, 70% of all cars production will disappear because people won't want to own a car anymore. They just call for a car anytime they will have it. And so the, the world is anti-jobs. All the technologies are going to be anti-jobs. So what does that leave us? That leaves us that if you want to worry, you should not worry about the technology. It will just keep coming. 
you should worry that you are not able to be the master of technology. So what we are teaching people, we are teaching people, we have to teach people how to imagine a better future and to keep on riding on the technology and how to ultimately do that is actually soft skill. A generalist becomes more important than a specialist because a generalist can see pattern, can see the entire society, the entire planet, even the entire universe. And if you can see like that, your mind needs things that the robots cannot do. So you need curiosity, courage, commitment, compassion, collaboration, community. Uh, these are the type of soft skill that they don't teach in school and if the robots can replace everything that you learn in school then you need the soft skill in order to harmonize the technology yes okay let's take a uh, let's take a pivot over here we'll talk about your movie uh, <laughs> tell me about the movie that you are direct uh, there's um, in the making right 2017 oh no i made a movie with uh, jack neil but there's not actually there's a few there is one is called uh everybody's business yes. so i wrote yeah i wrote the story and then i gave it to him and then together we fundraised a million dollars and uh, made that movie it wasn't uh, a box office winner uh, i don't think it's that great but it's the first try and uh, it's okay, yeah? And the, the interesting thing about this is that I don't know how to make a movie. So I go to Google, how to make a movie, and then it says 16 steps. And the first step is write a story, write a script, get the producer and then get a director, then after that raise funds or whatever, right? So there's a lot of work to do. So I say, okay, I can write a story. And then you sell the story. So at first I wanted to I wrote an Indian Bollywood life without toilet story and I gave it to Jack Neal. He loved it, but he don't know how to do an Indian show <laughs> in India. So eventually, he said it's too difficult and then I wrote another one which is a Singapore public toilet story and he got, he got Kumar and Gurmit Singh and all that to, to act in it. Liu Ling Ling and the whole gang. So I thought, this is nice and right now I, I write a second movie for Bollywood and I still haven't got it done. But in the meanwhile, uh, there is several documentaries that is done well and one is called The World Toilet Crisis by Vanguard that went very well many years ago. Another one is Architect of Change and then uh, the first one was the National Geographic channel, The Toilet Man. That was uh, uh, shown in 2008 at the Beijing Olympics. And then there are short ones called Meet Mr. Toilet. You can Google at YouTube. Yeah, three, minute one. three minute one. That one went to Cannes Lion Festival and the uh, Sundance Film Festival. And it's one of the more popular films. Uh, right now, we are producing a Flash Revolution. And this is... Uh, Probably going to finish next year. Um, who, what is your criteria of choosing next project to do? Because you have so much things to do on your hand already and you're still adding on more. Um, what made you choose? And you have so many ideas, right? How, how do you, what is your decision process like? 
when you commit to an idea? No, no. Process. Um, also, is there a criteria? No, no criteria. As long as it's neglected, it's a pressing problem. If somebody else is handling it well, then don't touch it. But if nobody is doing it, then go and do it because problems should not be left alone. Alright, so some uh, rapid fire question. Your answer don't need to be rapid. Um, are there any uh, books or documentary you like to recommend? I don't read books, so I don't know how to recommend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a film I like. It's called In Time. In Time. And uh, it is a film about everybody given some 25 years to live. And then you buy goods with your time. Until the time is gone, you die. So this is the way I live my life. I fail, I get a countdown clock on my cell phone and every day is one day less and I will die at 11 p.m. on my 80th birthday and now I have 7,389 days today. So it's like a thousand weeks later you don't see me anymore because I'm dead, right? So. When time is the real currency of life, you live your life in a very precious manner. You cherish every moment. You want to do meaningful, useful things. You don't want to go and waste time anymore. So death is a strong motivator for me. And that movie is really nice for me. Uh, if your 80-year-old self were to appear right now, and uh, what advice do you think your 80-year-old self would give to you? I think you will say uh, you should have done better. You're not good enough. Uh, you you are still uh, unable to mobilize the whole structure so that it's the most efficient and most powerful. Go find it, yeah. And uh, don't don't reach eighty years and become a disappointed person that those mission are not uh, achieved yet. And reflecting back, uh, if you were to give your maybe 20-year-old self and 40-year-old self advice, uh, what would they be and place us where we are at? So 20 and 40. I don't think I have much advice because at 20 you don't know anything. So the innocence are good and innocence means you can open up your thought and do whatever. Uh, my 40th self, I've already switched, so I think if I were to live like that again, it's okay, it's not so bad. But I'm just uh, unhappy with the level of uh, change that I'm able to effect. Because while I'm planning that I will live till 80, which is only like slightly more than a thousand weeks later and die, I might still be killed by uh, a bus uh, tomorrow and all that. So I have to try my best to do as much as possible. And the best is when you trigger a movement and other people do it. And then after you die, it really doesn't matter if there are people at your funeral because you know why you don't know, right? You're dead already. So whether you are remembered, uh, that's absolutely not important. The most important thing is that people have created uh, a new way of solving problem 
and you have triggered that and you are part of that journey. If you can give someone a, um, like the cornerstone, the pillar of a movement, what would that be? What are the cornerstone? Of it's a belief system. Religions are movement. Climate change is movement. Consumerism is movement. Branded goods are movement. Every time you create a belief system, people start to believe and everyone follow. So you can follow in a bad way like ISIS. You can follow in a good way like BOP Hub or World Toilet Organization. Of course, I'm chauvinistic when I tell you that. But I think that try to, try to create movement where people can make life better for other people. What would be the belief system of um, BOP Hub? That people can get out of poverty, everyone, if they have opportunity to do business and to create jobs. If they are connected with the formal economy, they can have a chance. Got it. I just want to give an example there. Um, when you think of the word successful, who came into your mind? Lee Kuan Yew. Why? Because he could do a lot of things. I mean, you might say methods-wise, he was very uh, ruthless or whatever. But the results is pretty good. So, you know, I, I think it's a very strong inspiration. And uh, it's very really, uh, useless and unhelpful for the social media to attack him because for me I don't care whether he's a good man or a bad man I care that it is very useful for us to believe he's a good man because it gives us pride as a nation that the founding father is a good man right why do you want your founding father to be a bad man that's stupid right so it helps for us to believe that he was good and it helps for us to understand. And I think Singapore would not have been like that if that spirit of enterprise and gumption was not there. That is why the loss of gumption here makes me want to start another initiative called the School of Gumption. I want to teach the seven C's, the soft skill, which is curiosity, Courage, compassion, commitment, collaboration, and communication. So all these things we want to teach in the school. Um, are there any routines or habits that you find important? I'm lack of sleep. So I need to sleep more. Which made me think I should start a sleep business also. Yeah. Any problem is an opportunity. Is there, are there any uh, says or do you uh, for the audience listening? Like, don't waste time. You can be really awesome. Think very big. Think of things that scares the hell out of you and believe that it can be done. Not by yourself alone, but by everybody. And then go and mobilize them. Don't think small. Small is not sexy. Small is not meaningful. Think huge and think 
of a very beautiful world that you can create. Don't try to serve yourself too much because when you serve yourself, your consciousness narrow and you become very narrow-minded and then later on you become very miserable. Serve others so that your consciousness open up and you became sustainably happy. That's great. Um, what are some of the projects that uh, you're doing? We created the 100 voices yes, uh, and we want to make an open platform for people to discuss how to improve the educational system. And I think this is helpful for the Ministry of Education because they also need the parents to understand how they want to improve and the constraint that they have because they're very scared that the parents will go and attack them. And the parents are very scared that their children will not grow up to be having better life than them. And the employers at the same time are saying, I can't get enough talent, so I got to go and import from foreign because your current educational system are producing followers, are producing people who always ask me for permission, people who can't decide for themselves. So this is what Singapore educational produce. So I don't want this, so I go and import from India and everywhere else. And then you have all these social problems. Why don't you change the educational system so that our people can be as good as the foreign talent? And surely we can be. But you are making a road learning process, you see. And all the time, government is telling us, you are weak, you are vulnerable, you are not very good, but don't worry, you have good government. But this kind of indoctrination makes us feel very inadequate and feel weak, you know. So don't do that. The American parents always say, you can be whoever you want to be. Yeah, this is the American dream. You can be awesome. You can be the president of the country. That's the way to encourage your child, right? Got it, yes. So 100 voices, are there any other projects people can look forward to? A lot, uh, a lot. BPO. <laughs> a lot, a lot. Because I just created the Fortified Rice, yes. a program to give nutrition to foreign workers. And we run it as a business, so we just got funded $1 million. And wow. we are now beginning at the value of death. We must get a lot of customers or we'll go bankrupt. So, non-stop. There's so many. Um, yeah, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, join my Facebook, uh, Jack Sim Facebook. I, I, I like to talk to people through Facebook. Okay. Yeah. All right, well, we're done. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Hey, what's up, people? It is over. All show notes, links, books can be found on our website, brianvictor.com. If you have any misfits you'd like to hear from, feel free to drop me an email. And I'd like to just say again, Happy New Year for you, everybody. I hope you guys are having a very good start to the new year. Misfit is still going strong. Lots of exciting guests coming up. Our next episode, we have a lady who's a thinker, philosopher, and a thought leader on passion. Um, she's also the founder of Food for Thought. So, in the meantime, if you want to stay updated, you can sign up for the mailing list on the website. And I will catch you guys soon. <laughs>